a French rider and I collided and I crashed uh, headfirst into asphalt going 40 miles an hour. But it happened so fast I couldn't brace, I couldn't move, I couldn't do anything. I just faced straight into the ground. Unleashed with the Dingo and Danny, fueled by Monster Energy. Which lady? Are you selfieing? No. Are you good, Danny? I'm good. Everyone good? Yeah. Yeah. We're Connor Fields, are you good? I'm ready. We got a BMX gold medalist in the room today. Let's give it up. That's right. Champion. Champion. Champion of America. Champion. You guys. We may not have anything to talk about. These guys already spoke for an hour before and <laughs> talked about, you know, Olympic stuff. Obviously, Danny's two-time Olympic silver medalist. Yeah. Connor is uh one-time gold medalist. Well, which is the official world champion. I right. guess, yeah. That's so here it is. Cool. Congratulations. First American to win a BMX gold medal, uh won three USA BMX national age group titles. Uh, as a teen and two-time World Cup, three-time USA BMX Series titles. That's a pretty good resume. At 29 years of age. Yeah, yeah. Um, I won a couple races over the years. It's been, once, it's been good. Won some races. And you two are both from Vegas. Woo! Yeah, 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 we are. So we have Brittany with us as always. Thank you, Brittany. Thank and you. then we have Danny over here, who we are connected at the hip. We are connected. Um, so I'm going to start off with something. Uh, we, we're, we're almost going to go backwards today. So I have a video here that I'm going to play. I think the sound should be good. Um, you announced your retirement uh, shortly. Uh, was it was it was it sh- directly after the Olympics or a little bit after? No, no. Um, I announced it about a month ago. So okay. about a year to the day after the Olympics, because okay. after what happened at the Olympics, I. Had a few things going on before right. I wanted to figure that we're gonna, out. We're going to get to that, but we're yeah. going to play this video right here. And um, this was from your social, and it's on the screen here, so we can all watch. How do you know when it's time to stop doing the only thing you've ever done? How do you know when you've had enough? Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes the decision gets made for you. Sometimes, it just feels like it's time. I was seven years old when my mom found that flyer for the local track. From the first time I laid eyes on BMX, I was hooked. You have been the main thing that I thought about every single day since then. When I started racing you in 1999, it was for fun, for the rush, for the freedom. As I got older, I idolized the pros. I wanted to be a pro. And when I watched BMX Racing make its Olympic debut, I knew that was what I wanted most. It was 2009, and I had just celebrated my 17th birthday when I realized I was actually pretty good. Racing against my heroes and the guys I still had posters of on my wall, I realized I was one of them. And from that day forward, I only wanted to win. I only wanted to be a champion. And I would do whatever it took to get there. Training became priority number one. And every waking moment was dedicated to winning. World Cups. Undefeated and unbeaten. USA BMX. The Olympics. 
pro-ams, Euro routes, Canadian routes, whatever it was, I wanted to race it and I wanted to win it. I won a lot and I also lost a lot. Some of the toughest losses produced the most growth. Thank you for the good times, for the friendships made and the lessons learned, for the places traveled. Thank you for the hard times, for teaching me how to dedicate myself to a goal. Thank you for teaching me how to win, but more importantly, how to lose. And thank you for teaching me how to never give up. As I got older and I watched my competitors retire and move on, it started to sink in that professional BMX racing was not going to be forever. I wanted to go out on my own terms. And in a way, I still am. Despite the thing that I love most, nearly ending my life, I am still here, still riding, and still that same kid who loved BMX. Just now, for the first time in as long as I can remember, starting today, when I ride BMX, it will be for the same reason that I started back in 1999. It will be for fun. Thank you, BMX, for the highs, for the lows, the victories, and the losses. And most of all, thank you for the journey. I'll be seeing you around. I got the chills. Yeah. Wow. wow. That was really cool. We're done. We can go home. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's... um. You need to make a retirement video. I know. He'd asked me if I how I announced my retirement, and I was like, shh, no one knows I'm not <laughs> eating anymore. Um, so how did you get into BMX? Yeah, so as most kids do, I learned how to ride a bike, and I loved it from the second I learned how to do it. And I was jumping off of curbs and popping wheelies in the street and just riding until the streetlights came on. And one day, my bike had a flat tire, so my mom took it down to the bike shop down the road to get it fixed, and there was a flyer that was advertising the local racetrack. And my mom was like, oh, you know, Connor loves to ride his bike. Let's go check this out. So I think that weekend, we went and watched some races, and I think I must have just, I don't remember this, I was seven, but I was looking at it and just like, oh my God, this looks amazing. So I all week begged my mom to go back out and go racing the next weekend, and the next weekend, I went racing, and I didn't stop until... Last month. Wow. Oh. Um, h- h- how does the process work? Um, obviously, snowboarding, there's the USSA and then the junior programs to go up. Um, obviously, you started at a very young age. Was that start locally in Vegas and then you start touring the country? How does the circuit work like a- as a junior? Yeah, so there's different levels. So it starts just local racing. You race the people from your hometown. From there, the next level up would be to go to the state series. So I'm from Las Vegas, uh, in the state of Nevada, so pretty much it's Vegas and Reno, so we would just race the competitors from Reno. Next level would be West Coast, then nationwide. Uh, but when I started, BMX wasn't in the Olympics, and it wasn't until 2005, when I was like 12, 13 years old, that they announced that BMX racing was going to be in the Olympics. So when I started, it was just for fun, because I liked it. I wanted to do it. And I played other sports till I was 11 or 12. Um, and then when they announced that BMX was going to be in the Olympics, I didn't know. When you're 12, you're like, I don't know what that means. But then when I saw it on TV in 2008, I was like, okay, that's it. Like yeah. that's, what, that's what I want to do. Being able to visualize something makes it a, a, a lot easier, right? Even, I think, what was the first Olympics you watched 
98? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of the same way. I was into competing snowboarding, like, locally and just around, like, kind of Vermont area. But then, yeah, 16, I think, was the first year they had it, and it was in Japan. And I just kind of, like, remember staying up till like, 2 in the morning to, like, you know, watch my heroes do it. But up until then, I didn't really have this Olympic dream in snowboarding. There really wasn't that, you know, that outlet. And I think one thing that's really cool, you know, about your story and BMX in general is how it's like a lot of people will use a sport as like a gateway into another sport, right? Like maybe start with bikes and go to FMX, but like to achieve greatness on a bike, but then continue through seven all the way, you know, until you retire is pretty incredible. Totally. And then like what you're saying, there's so many riders that I rode with as kids and they branched out into moto was the common one or they get to high school and they start playing football or doing other things and I just never stopped just kept going I mean I when I was a kid I used to race with Christian Craig and other guys who race moto now um and I just stayed on the two wheels and never got the motor you ever you had to stop when was the first time you rode a bike I mean, probably when I was seven. I can see Brittany having uh, the the baseball cards in her in her bike. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like a motorbike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you as a teenager, you were uh, BMX the USA BMX National Age Group. Um, when when what was that? When it was almost potentially like a realistic thing for you to become a pro BMXO? Kinda. I mean, I always knew in my mind. Uh, from the moment I watched the Olympics, that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go pro. I wanted to do the whole thing. Like you said, when you see it on TV, and that was the first time I'd ever seen BMX racing on TV and not just in the magazines or on the DVDs or whatever, it was always going to happen in my mind. Um, I wasn't that good yet, but then when I started winning as an amateur, then uh, it kind of became more reality, and sponsors started coming in. And First I, sponsor? Uh, different bike brands, my first sponsors. We won't talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, old, how old were you, like, when you knew, like, I'm good? Like, uh, when so your parents were like, uh-oh. It was in that in that video when I was 17, so it was a week after my 17th birthday, and that uh, meant I was old enough to race World Cups, which is the competitions that you go through to earn your spot on the Olympic team. Um, so I was racing against, this is 2009, I was racing against the guys who had just medaled in, in Beijing and got all these Olympic accolades, and then I went and got third place at this World Cup, which set a record that still stands today for the youngest person to ever podium a World Cup, and it was my first one. Oh, wow. And so it was kind of in that moment, like, I didn't expect that, my parents didn't expect that, nobody expected it, and it was like, okay, this kid's got something here. Mm -hmm. And then from then on, it was like 100% dedication. Do, do you? Sorry, go ahead. Did you did we, did you stay in? So you were seventeen. So you were still in high school, or did yeah, you, yeah, that you was did both. I, I did both. So, so you're like that hot little like junior, like oh, I'm just like a pro. Yeah, exactly. So I was a senior, and <laughs> whatever. I'll, I'll, <laughs> she thinks I'm hot. She's yeah. flirting with you. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I hope my uh, fiance doesn't watch this. No. Um, but uh, I went to school. Uh, I think it was like Tuesday or Wednesday before that event. Uh, the event was in San Diego, and you know, I'm in class, just a you know, normal student, and I go on the weekend, I podium a World Cup, I'm getting checks, popping champagne, doing the whole thing, and Monday morning, back in class. and uh, show, and, show and tell? Yeah. So, <laughs> what did you do this weekend? Yeah. <laughs> so that was pretty funny, but that's a good story, too. I mean, um, that night, they had an official after party, and I was 17, but um, somehow I managed to sneak my way in there. <laughs> 
I'll never forget. That was like at the time, and even now looking back, that might have been like the peak of my life. Like being a young kid, race is first thing, dream comes true, sneaking into the after party, out all weekend, back to school Monday. It's like uh, that, that was a fond memory. Another thing like that I think a lot of people don't understand, at a teenager, when you start going into that, you, you're sacrificing. This isn't just something on a whim. You're like, oh, like, h- how much did you have to sacrifice as a teen to lose probably a lot of your teenage childhood when people are, you know, blowing up mailboxes, partying at night, do whatever it is that kids do. You're out there sacrificing this dream. Yeah, I mean, I trained six days a week from the time I was 15. So I really should have just had like a pre-programmed response in my phone that would say, sorry, I can't, I've got practice. I can't, I've got to go to the gym. I can't do that. I've got to get up early tomorrow to work out. I would go work out before school, go to school, and then go ride after school. So it was just a constant dedication um, to trying to get better. But it was because that's what I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to do that more than I wanted to go and get into trouble. And and I got into some trouble, and I have great friends that I'm still friends with from from back then. But um, I did sacrifice quite a a lot, but – I don't view it as a sacrifice because it's what I wanted to do. Right. So what was the process to make the 2012 U.S. Olympic team? Um, So to make the Olympic team, there's 32 racers uh, around the world that would get a spot at the Olympics in 2012. America would be three of them. So you had to be one of the three best Americans to earn a spot on the gate. Uh, I won my spot by winning the Olympic trials. Uh, It was basically... The top eight guys raced, and if you get first place, you're on the team. No questions asked. Wow. And so I won. That's nice, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, I'm, there's a coach's pick. There was a points. There's some other stuff, too. But this was just the win and you're in scenario for one of the three spots. So so you make the – how old were you made the 2012 team? I was 19, and I was the youngest rider in our event at the Olympics. So what's going through your head as you – sorry, where were these Olympics? London. So this is the London Olympics. What's going through your head when – you get there, the process. You had a roommate? Uh, I did. He was uh, a road cyclist, was the roommate. Oh, you didn't get an actual, because there's th- only three, three of guys, us. So the other two got each other. The other two were like best friends. So it was it made sense that they would be together and that I would be the one meeting somebody. And it, I remember it was like a 30-year-old road cyclist. So we had nothing in common. Nothing in common. I'm like a 19-year-old BMX punk, and he's like a 30-year-old father. Yeah, and wow. So, yeah. <laughs> but he's a nice guy, and we are all on the same team there, so. Who were your two roommates? Uh, Andy Finch. Right. Monster alumni. And then the first time we went to Salt Lake, we all stayed in the house. So everyone was... Oh, everyone was in the house? Yeah, we like all the boys. I think the... Not the girls, but Ross and JJ. Right, you right, didn't do right. the village? Tommy Shashin. No, we were like, unfortunately, in Salt Lake, we were just up near the mountains in Park City. Um, but we did go do a tour of the village after we did well. Was the Olympic Village everything you kind of expected? Yeah, so I went to three Olympics, and the village was so different at all of them. So London, Rio, Brazil, and um, Tokyo. So the London one, it was, it was cool, but it was just very like bland. Like it, it was your bed, a nightstand, a dresser, and that was kind of it. And then in um, Rio, it was you know, loud and just what you expect in Brazil, kind of a party going on all the time and just diff- totally different vibe. Yeah. And then Tokyo, it was the COVID Olympics. So everybody was like hiding in their rooms because if you tested positive, you'd get sent home. So it was just three very different 
very unique experiences with the village. But to answer what question I think you're asking, yes, it gets wild at the Olympic Village. I mean, I yeah, was how, how I, I, I was going to ask you there. I, I, I was trying to get to the uh, the condom boxes. I think yeah, that's that's what I that's what the I was condom getting. boxes. You don't know about this? No, I don't know about this. Tell me. <laughs> one of the one oh, of the what? most frequently asked questions of any Olympians is they always go, "Is it true?" Mm-hmm. And you go, "Is what true?" Yeah. And they're like, "I heard the Olympic Village is like nonstop like sex." <laughs> really? Yeah. Is it? Uh, you have to can't, can't answer that one. What sport are you good at? You have to do some training, go to the Olympics, and find out. I don't know if I could. I don't think I could. They'll accept me. <laughs> I don't know if I'm good at anything. So here's what you got to. Here's what you got to think about. I don't want to go find out. I'm too old to find out. <laughs> Just tell me. <laughs> here's what you got to think about. You've got, I don't know, five, ten, whatever the number is, that many thousand athletes that have been training for years, no, dedicated no, no. I, I, to this I, goal. I'm following that, but I mean, is there, are there that many over. girls? And then it's over. Well, there's, and there's now what do you want to do? You want to you party? I you guess that's cut fair loose? enough. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm feeling like I missed out on the Brazilian Olympics for sure. Well, you're a snowboarder. I know. Um, <laughs> so you got second to last in 2012. Did you, did you, going into it, did you feel, did you, obviously you qualified very high. Was it nerves? Like what got to you? Or it was just, you kind of just, what, the, too much sex. <laughs> what happened? Because you obviously qualified very high yeah. and then and then finished. So what ended up happening, so there was 32 guys who raced. The final is eight. Yep. So I made it all the way to the final. Yep. And then I got seventh out of the eight in the final. Yep. But Which, I was... Sorry, isn't... isn't like I'm, in I'm the, the, in the on. final. I got seventh in the Olympics, yeah. and I'm like, you sucked at this yeah, one, dude. Yeah, like <laughs> you beat more than one person, thing. <laughs> um... But as you're very aware, you know this, you either get a gold medal, a silver medal, a bronze medal, or a participation certificate. If you get fourth or worse, you literally Nobody get... Nobody wants that. A lot of... Well, there's two different kinds of athletes. You've got five to ten athletes in every sport that are there to try to win. And then you have the other athletes who just know. Even on their best day, they have no shot at yeah. winning. But they're just happy to be there. They're happy to be there. I would be one of those they athletes. Want, they want... That's my No, you'd be out in the Allen Catholic village. village participating. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. But, um, yeah, so I qualified for the finals as the number one seed and had an amazing chance to win. But being 19 caught up to me at that moment where it was like, I really hadn't won that much because I was so young. And now I'm in the biggest moment on the biggest stage with everything right in front of me. And I have to seize the moment. And I just wasn't ready. And I kind of choked. Qualifying first, does that mean you get the gate pick or mm-hmm. there's a certain gate? That means I get my uh, the gate pick and I get the preferred inside line. What went through your head at the gate drop? Before the gate drop, the last thing I said to my coach was, I'm going to win. So like I had, I had already thought I was going to win. And that was the mistake as I got too far ahead of myself. I wasn't just thinking step by step. I was already thinking about the celebrations before thinking about what I needed to do to get there. But then the gate dropped and I immediately knew that I was off. And... In BMX racing, it all happens so fast. It's a 35 to 40 second race. So within three seconds, you know, like, ah. Uh, right, unless there's a major crash. Yeah. Right. It's like the first turn or two. You, got, you yeah. guys crash a lot in BMX races. I mean, we try not to. I mean, but it happens. Yeah, I, it does. Yeah. And, and I think, like, the easiest thing with racing, you don't need to know anything about any sport mm-hmm. to know that the person that comes gets through to the line first wins. wins. Yeah. Whereas MMA, it's it's if, if you go the three to five rounds, there's judging points and, yeah, yeah right there's all there's uh, a point system Brittany's the UFC ring girl from the beginning so she knows a lot about MMA maybe you could go to the Olympics as a wrestler 
A wrestler? We could get Rhonda to be your coach. Oh my gosh, this is something. Or what if they made like <laughs> Octagon Girls as like an actual? <laughs> we'll have all the ring girls like lined up, you know? All right. Because where we had a, a, a um, snowboarding this year had a very snowboarding's gone to such a, uh, uh, it, it's got so, the progression of it has gone so high and so far so quickly. That there are people doing triple flips and God, it's it's insane. It's fucking insane. It's insane, and it's very hard for some people, even people in the sport, to know understand one, two, and three. Like, how did you get first, second, and third? There, Red Gerard, for example, did a run that could have potentially got a gold. It could it probably should have been on the podium. Ended up in like fifth or sixth or something. And in his head, he did the run and landed it. And in his head. And it's one of those weird things where if you go out too early and do the gnarliest shit in the first couple, if you're out of the gate in the first top six, most likely you could do the gnarliest run, but the guy who's going to get a second run is going to come, the scores are, and, and it's very hard for people that don't know to watch, if it's hard for us, the judges don't know, whereas you're in this sport that's easy for the audience to watch and not understand and know that the guy that gets first, well, the guy that gets seventh, no, they know where the placement is. Totally, and and I, that's one reason I always enjoyed and was drawn to to racing is because, at the end of the day, I can't blame anybody else. Just like in a judge sport where you're like, I should have won, but they gave me second. You know, I could make the argument I should have won. In racing, you either did or you didn't, and I don't have to blame anybody else but yourself for not executing. So I always like that. But due to the success that snowboarding and some of the action sports in the Winter Olympics, BMX racing, we were the first action sport added to the Summer Olympics. Right. What year was that? Oh, wait. 2008. Okay. And one of the reasons um, I've heard that they chose BMX racing is for the exact reason that you're saying, is that it's just so easy to understand. You don't need to know anything about action sports. All you need to understand is the first person across the finish line wins. Because... The casual fan who tunes in for the Olympics doesn't ever watch snowboarding or skiing or any of these sports ever. Then they watch the Olympics, they see all these crazy tricks, and they might think that that crazy backflip looked insane, but it's not as technically difficult as some of these tricks where maybe you're not going as high, but they're way harder to perform. Yeah. And the average casual viewer doesn't know. Yeah. So tell your coach you're going to win. You get seventh as a 19-year-old kid. Probably a pretty bad day for you. Oh, I thought the world was ending. Uh, the sun wasn't coming out tomorrow, and nothing was ever going to be okay again. Yeah. Yeah. And four years is a long time, especially <sighs> as a 19-year-old. It really is. And uh, I don't think you have a full appreciation of that moment until down the road and you look back and you realize, like, what an opportunity. And also that, you know, at the time you think that the sun's not coming out tomorrow and nothing's ever going to be okay. But then also you can look back and say, hey, you know what? It, it sucked. It was hard. But in the grand scheme of life, you're going to have more opportunities and more things and just keep on trucking. But when you're in that moment, it's hard. It's hard to hard to think that way. I liked what you said in your video when you were like, and thank you for like teaching me how to lose. Yeah. You know, like I think that that's such an important part of any competition, like a competitive sport or just in life, right? Like you appreciate your wins, but when you can really appreciate your losses and learn from them and grow from them, I mean, that's, I loved when you said that. It's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody learned, you don't learn anything from winning. Right. You, well, well, it's easy to be a great winner, but it's hard to be a great yeah, loser. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, you became a pretty successful second place guy. Well, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I, would you would you rather have two Olympic silver medals or one gold? I don't have any, so fucking you guys beat me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, bingo. I got a participation for certificate. You know, <laughs> it's just, it's just kind of uh, like uh, like uh, you know, it, it, it's crazy because the first one. Danny probably should have won, but the guy that got the gold medal did the highest air ever. And at the time, then it was like, you know, and and he was 19 at that time. And then the second one, Sean White, that was the come up. Danny definitely didn't, definitely deserved second on that one. Sean was like, well, we were only two points apart on that. It was close. No, it was very close. And that run was, but that was the beginning of probably one of the best halfway competitors. I mean, Danny and Sean went back to back for a long time, you know, and then there was the one time you beat him clearly was at the Tahoe Cup or whatnot. And that's when you started 270 in. So these guys had this battle, but it was crazy because they they were the first, it was 52 years and our first American podium sweep in however long, a first Olympic snowboarding for in America. And it just, it's, everything changed from 2002, like that wave into 2006, and then it became like you know, Sean, it became like rock star type shit, and people on the cover of Rolling Stone, and the the industry did this like you know kind of cra- cr- crazy you know. Yeah, but you're right at the Olympics. I think first, second, and third, you walk away with something. You're there, right? That means and so so obviously winning, but then coming away with two Olympic medals. It's you stood on that podium twice yeah. on that period of time. So it's. It's, I don't know. It's pretty badass. I don't know what I'm it's tough. It's tough. <laughs> pretty badass. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just becoming, you know, like what they say, which is really cool, is like getting to go and the experience is like you're always an Olympian and that's like part of this one percentile or less than point zero one percentile of people who actually compete in sports who get to like go as a group and compete for their nations, right? And that's one of the coolest things. But I think as a competitor, you always want more, right? Even if you do win, it's like you wanted to win better in yeah. certain ways. Yeah, I didn't right? win by enough. Yeah, I didn't yeah. win by enough, or I didn't do this. But that's what drives you to get to that level. Like, there's a yeah. little bit of that in anyone who reaches the top of not just sport, whatever your field is. But you don't get to the top without wanting that continuous improvement of getting to the very, very best you can be. It's also interesting, like, you know, when they have the Olympics, right? It's what, every four years or so, or... So you have to be at the peak in that time that it just so happens to be it. So like you're, it's just the timing of it too. Like you just so happen to be 24 at the peak or whatever age, 19, 16, whatever. But I think that's also interesting. It's just like a fate of time. So, no, th- totally true. And they, right? beautiful too because like some people come out of nowhere, right? Like yeah. Brad Gerard and you know when he won his slope style it was like the year before. No one really counted him as the one or anything, you know. And you come out. Like so Sage, Gostenberg, and other people. But then also there's those times where you could be the best in the world and you go there. One bad day. You, one bad day, one you bad get COVID, day. you don't even get to compete mm-hmm. or something, you know? So he, he, He's a coach now and his, his the, who he coaches, Q, she got second. Yeah, she got a silver medal so, so in China. He's great, he's great at getting silver, silver guy. medals. He got, he well, got that's co- what I told her. I go, I, I didn't promise you anything higher. I, don't, <laughs> I, I knew how to get golds. I would have. <laughs> he ended up getting COVID and couldn't go to China with him. Uh, so do it all by phone. That yeah. was a pretty sad moment. That was super sad. And going back to what you were saying about that every four years, um, and we're going to jump forward a little here, Tokyo was supposed to happen in 2020. Yeah. They postponed it a year. Right. So then there was all that sitting around waiting people not in prime prime and mm-hmm. that, that 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 was the one time where it's kind of been off and you imagine you know how, how was it training that whole time and then not knowing if it's going to happen 
and then and then waiting a year for it to kind of happen, and then in the circumstances yeah. and sticking shit up your nose every two seconds, it's like I, I think a lot of people forget about that. And then also the first Olympics where there's no crowd. You know, you're just used to it. You yeah. now, by 2020, that's your third Olympics. You're one gold medal deep. You're used to a, an environment to where there was almost, you know, a non-environment in 2020. Let's go back to that four-year period. Was it just straight training and focus? Did you keep the same coach? Is this from London through Rio? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That And that that was when I was really just starting to hit my stride, 2021, 22. Because that's your peak body Kind of. I mean, you, uh, and I'm sure you'd kind of agree. Like, you physically get a little bit stronger more in your late 20s, but in your early 20s, you have a little bit more of that, like, I don't even care what happens. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to send it. And then you get older, you take a few hits, you grow, and, and you start, you know, whether you have a wife or kids or just responsibilities, you start thinking twice sometimes before just sending it. But when you're yep. 20, just caution goes into the wind. You just send it. Yep. So I was really in that period where I was just, Riding high, trying to win everything, living the dream. Um, had some great years, had a lot of fun. and But at the end of the day, in the back of my mind, I always knew I wanted the big one. Right? I want to win all the titles. I want to win the U.S. title, the World Championship, the World Cup, the Canadian ch- I want to win it all. But I always wanted the big one, which is the Olympics. And I'm sure you could um, you know, back me up on this. You could win whatever the highest level is in your sport whether it's the X Games or the USA BMX number one pro, whatever it is. And in your sport, that's a really big deal. But as soon as you leave your sport, nobody has any idea what that is. But if you walk up anywhere in the world, you can say I'm an Olympic medalist, people know what that means. Five-time US Open champion. Five-time. Yeah, so I mean, I've basically (laughs) done all that. But I mean, obviously it does, you know, just getting there and getting the hardware feels like a win, but you're so right about it because... You know, I'd done a lot of things in snowboarding, you know, U.S. Open title and X Games and the things that were the biggest, you know, in our sport. But the first Olympic medal I got, it was like two days later, I was just going to this breakfast place and I just like see like a table full of grannies, like put their newspapers down and like look over at me. Uh (laughs) You're that kid. And I was like, whoa, because yeah. like, you know, I'd only experienced a little bit of like recognition from like people my age or snowboarders and skaters in our group. But then the Olympics brings in like anyone who has a television or reads a newspaper will know who you are. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Even Jay Leno. We'll yeah, make, even Jay. I mean, I got make, we'll make fun of you in his opening uh, line. Yeah. <laughs> it's good he says something along the lines of. I don't know. I don't know why they uh, talk. I, I don't know. I, I don't know why they think um, testing for weed is a bad thing unless they're standing at the bottom of the hot pot holding a candy bar. <laughs> 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 so let's get into Rio. And you said the environment was different. Getting there, the party environment, that just 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 Brazil in general. Brazil yeah. was also, I believe, one of the best documented Olympics. You know, of of recent years of. The way they did it. Um, were you? Uh, uh, real quick side question: Did you happen to hang out with Lochte or any of the swimmers through that oh, process? No, but um, <laughs> I had to deal with Ralph Lauren. Right. Uh, they so going into every Olympics, Ralph Lauren picks eight to ten athletes to be yep. brand ambassadors for Ralph Lauren. Um, they do two-year contracts with the summer Olympic athletes, and then they move over to the winter athletes, and they do two years with the winter athletes. They just kind of go on a cycle. So for Rio, I was selected to be one of the Ralph Lauren athletes. 
So we got to go on the Today Show and model the opening ceremonies outfits and photo shoots. And it was an awesome experience until I was getting blown up on my phone because Ryan Lochte, who's another Ralph Lauren athlete, was making a mockery of Brazil. And angry Brazilian fans were coming at anybody and everything they could get their hands on because of what happened with Ryan Lochte. Yep. Um, So that part about it wasn't very much fun. Um, But... I wasn't down there. Um, he would have been partying probably around the same time I arrived because we were at the very end of the games, so we didn't show up for openings. But we that, stayed home training. But didn't the media kind of ruin a bunch of that stuff? Because once that happened, that was all anybody talked yes, about. Yes, a little bit. Yeah, what um, was the scandal? What did he? What were they doing? Again? Okay, so um, dirt. Low key, he also married a monster model. <laughs> oh, did he? Brian Lochte did. Yeah. Okay, what's the dirt? Um, what's the dirt? I'm. I'm not like an expert in this, but what ended up happening was he had claimed that he had tried, uh, that he had been mugged and like some sketchy stuff happened to him when he was out. Um, then security tapes from a gas station got released oh, and he was yeah. hammered and like being destructive and breaking stuff and stealing stuff. I remember and that. so then he was trying to go home and he was boarding a flight back to America. And then Brazilian police came on, escorted him off the plane and, Brought him and yeah. put him in jail for destruction of property and lying and all the stuff like that. So that was going on during the Olympics when other athletes were trying to compete. Right. So it kind of took away from a, a, yeah. a bunch. Yeah. It didn't affect you though. So you, what was the difference between arriving in London, arriving in Rio? You're like four years down the road. The sun did come back up. <laughs> <laughs> Barely, almost. Same coach. Uh, yeah, yeah, same coach. Cool. And uh, all, all, only real difference was just experience. I was just an older athlete and I had been through the Olympics so I I knew kind of what it was going to be like and um first I keep coming to you unless you've been to the Olympics you don't truly have an understanding that like I go every year yeah (laughs) (laughs) it goes every year there's nothing that can prepare you for it and nothing is like it like you can do any competition you can do anything else you do anything you want to get ready but nothing will truly prepare you for it other than actually experiencing yep and it's a common thing I was actually um part of a study that the U.S. Olympic team did after Rio where they were trying to figure out what they could do to help athletes not go through that experience of having a bad one and then having to come back and do it better the second time. Right, because a lot of people... It's common. Uh, well, it's, 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 it's uncommon to regular society, common to a small group of people that need help that before ha- probably hadn't had help with that. Yeah, and, it is, and what they're trying to figure out, is it something we could do with a psychologist? Is it something that we can bring you to a games maybe when you're younger to see it as a spectator to understand what it's going to be like like they're just trying to figure out ways they could stop athletes from having that experience of like deer in headlights yeah. on their first games so really all the difference was was just experience and that i went there knowing that it was one step at a time it was another competition it wasn't anything different don't start counting my checks before i'm there you know things like that and um i just enjoyed the process a bit more and the experience and um, ended up winning. Yeah. Qualif- what, what did you qualify into the finals? Uh, fifth or sixth. Ha! Yeah. So, <laughs> so you didn't get different. the gay choice. I didn't, but I just looked back at London. I was like, I was number one qualifier last time, and it didn't mean anything. Yeah. And so just because I qualified fifth or sixth or whatever it was, it doesn't mean that I can't go and get a medal. Yep. That's awesome. And uh, – so you get to do, you win, you get to do the ceremony. Did you do closing ceremonies? I did. Yeah. That was a good time. Yeah, yeah, especially 
with a gold medal around your neck. It, it was a great time. Um, it was uh, raining. All the athletes from all over the country, all different countries were there. Everybody was loose, having a good time. Olympics was over. It was a good vibe. All right, so let's move, jump to 2020. And then we kind of touched on it a little bit there, but um, what was the process like of not knowing if the 2020 games were going to happen? What were they telling you guys? Because this is in the heart of COVID, remember? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, and you guys remember, like, in that very first couple months of COVID, everything was changing every day, right? So initially it was everything is canceled until the Olympics, but the Olympics is going to happen. And then it was, oh, Olympics is postponed a year. And that's never happened in the history of the Olympics ever. So we were all like, okay, what do we do? We had this entire plan mapped out for these four years. And now not only is the Olympics canceled, but every other event is canceled. So it's like, do I stay in shape, stay fit in case we start racing again? Because it was supposed to just be two weeks. And then it was supposed to be two more (laughs) weeks. And then it's supposed to be two more weeks. So it's like, okay, well, I'm going to stay fit. I'm going to stay ready because we're going to get going. And then pretty soon after you start realizing like it's not coming back anytime soon, international events, international travel, things like that. So then it's like, okay, well, do I just chill? Like, so it's like this weird thing. What do I do? Do I just crack open a, a beer and relax? Or do I stay fit and use this as an extra year to train? Um, and nobody wants to do that when you've just wrapped your head around, okay, I've got six more months of training and then I get some time off. Oh, just kidding. You have a year and six months of training until you get some time off. Like that's a big jump. So I just kept working, um, stayed fit, stayed in shape. And then when you got into 2021 and it started to seem like the Olympics was actually going to happen. It was like, all right, game on, let's try to make this work. But it was a wild experience. Like, um, you had to do so many, so many tests before you could even go. You got there, you landed, they took you to a separate special part of the airport, shuttled you from there to a special bus directly to the Olympic village. You were not allowed to leave the village. You had to take a test every single morning in the village. And if you pop positive, you were sent to somewhere to... Were many people testing positive? I think there was like 10 to 20, something in that range. Yeah, wow. Which I don't understand how you would because you came from the airport in this special area where you took a test before you were allowed to the village. You weren't allowed to leave the village other than to go to your field of play which is only people that are also in the village. It was this like not, crazy thing. Not many condoms in that village, huh? I don't think so. <laughs> body, <laughs> body condoms this year. Yeah. Full well, that's body what happened condoms. to Dusty, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. He, Dusty Henry. He kept testing positive, but he wasn't feeling any symptoms or anything, right? Yeah, yeah, for like a month after, and then they had him in a weird little thing, and yeah, it was, it was yeah. a lot to deal with. Yeah. It was a whole thing, and like no friends and family could come watch you compete. Like you were just alone. Yeah, no spectators, no nothing. Nothing. Big stands, every, they still have the grandstands. Everything yeah. was built, ready to go, but you were solo. It just felt like a I, ghost town. And huh? then I, I, I found it weird that they just kept the 2020 logos. Yeah, yeah, they did. It, and, oh. uh, it was really weird to look at. I guess it cost money to do all that stuff, but, you know, it cost money to yeah, do but, everything. Yeah, they're not getting any seat sales. So. Yeah, you know. So, uh, anyway, it was the 2020 games. It ended up being the 2021 games. Um, talk. Let's talk about the crash, because this crash happened in qualifiers. You hit your head. So it was in semifinals. So the first day was quarterfinals. Uh, I won my quarterfinal. I entered the second day as the number one seed. Um, you know, everything was kind of on pace to have a shot to repeat. Obviously, it's racing and anything could happen, but I was in a good position. The semis are run over a best of three. And I was currently in the lead after two. Again, number one seed. Everything was clicking. Everything was going great. And then in the third semifinal, um, a French rider and I collided and I crashed uh, 
head first into asphalt going 40 miles an hour. Jeez. But it happened so fast, I couldn't brace, I couldn't move, I couldn't do anything. I just faced straight into the ground. Um, I have no memory of the entire day. So those first two semis, I've got nothing. Um, and the next thing I remember is waking up five days later in a hospital in Japan with nobody around me who speaks English, no idea what's happening, no idea how I got there, and nobody to tell me what's going on. No way. Did you, like, reach for your chest? Were you like, is there metal there? <laughs> what is it? I, I had bandages because I was all cut up and yeah. messed up. And, um, you know, I obviously didn't feel good because I just had brain bleeding. And I was kind of confused. Like, that. imagine, like, the worst post-concussion feeling you've ever had combined with, like, what the heck is happening? Where yeah. am I? What's, what's happening? What what's day going? is it? Like, do yeah. I still have time to make the next race? And then, and then I look over at the bedside table eventually. Like, I'm trying to get my grips of where I am, what's going on. I look, I see my phone. I open my phone. I have, like, 600 text messages. Yeah, I bet. And it's, like, people saying, like, prayers, prayers. Are you alive? Are you okay? And, like, no one wow. has any idea, like, what's going on. And did on. you register, like, when you when you looked at your phone, like, was it, like, oh, shit? Like, the, or was it, did it still take you a while? No, I think I, like, I remembered everything up until, like, the right. day of. Right, right, right. So I remembered that I was in Tokyo. It, it you start, something went down. You just didn't like, know what have, went I down. I must have crashed. It's kind of what I figured. Did you watch, did you have any videos or any, like, oh, on your phone? Oh, it was all over the internet. So you're so just, I like, watching, like, oh, yeah. shit. I open my phone. I see Dang. it. And then um, the first thing I did is I FaceTimed my fiance. And um, I don't remember this at all, but apparently I was, like, 10-second Tom. Like, I was just say something and then. you like a fish? Yeah, I was like, hey, <laughs> what's up? How are you? How are you doing? Like, you know, it's just over and over. <laughs> but. Second Tom. I've never heard that. <laughs> then she had let people know that hey, he's awake. So then, like, the Team USA doctor came in and started talking to me because they truly didn't know when I woke up, like, what state I was going to be in. And, like, if I was going to recognize people, know what was happening, wow. know what was going on. Um, so they wanted to get somebody in who I could communicate with, speak English. And it's like, you know, what day is it? Do you know where you are? You, who, who was the first person to like speak English to you and kind of let you the know doctor. Going, the doctor? Well, Laura, because I called her. Right. But then it, she let the doctor know, hey, he's up and go yep. and get him. Yeah. Um, brain hemorrhage? So I had um, four different spots on my brain that were bleeding. Um, wow. My frontal lobe, my parietal lobe. I had swelling on a couple different pieces. There was a, a moment when I was basically being prepped for surgery because they were going to need to remove part of the skull to relieve the pressure. But thankfully at the last minute, the swelling went down and they didn't have to do that. Wow. Um, and it was like pretty touch and go. I stopped breathing when I was on the track. They had to create an airway. Jesus. Um, they do that. Yeah. yeah. Whatever you call it down the throat. Yeah. Um, and then there was an entire thing where the, uh, I was in an ambulance at the track for a half an hour because the hospital was refusing to take me due to COVID stuff. Oh, my God. It, yeah. That's such bullshit. It was a whole thing. Um, and so for my parents back home, all they're, all they're being communicated is he's still in the ambulance at the track. He's still in the ambulance. They're oh, not wow. going anywhere. And, like, there's really only one reason why the ambulance wouldn't be in a hurry. So they're like at home thinking the worst. Yeah. And it was like a terrifying, I mean, I don't know. I was, I was asleep, but it was a terrifying experience for everybody else. Cause they weren't there and they couldn't figure out what was happening and nobody knew. So it was, uh, it was a hard day for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, you didn't know you were sleeping. Yeah. I was taking a nap, man. But you, you know, did many people realize that you almost died? People there, people connected to me, people that, 
have a reason to know do. Um, I think it's something that's uncomfortable for people to talk about injuries and head injuries in general. Nobody ever wants to sit and be like, tell me about your head injury, right? It's just something that's hard to think about and talk about. Even me, like I have competitors who I've competed against and friends of mine who have had brain injuries and are not the same. And like, it's not something you like to think about or focus on. Like you just, yeah, you can't, you can't, especially when you're an action sport athlete and that yeah. could be you. Yeah. Um, but I don't think people, and I don't expect people to know just how bad it was because I'm not like running around, waving my hand, telling everybody, Hey, I almost died. Like, you know, um, it happened. It sucked. It was awful. I am so thankful that at the end of the day, everything turned out okay. And yeah. I made a full recovery. And... How, how, how quick was that recovery? Or what, what was the process of learning to, you know, walk or talk or like, what was the steps on that? So the first thing was we got to get him home. I'm in Japan right now. Yeah. And I'm alone. And in so, COVID times. In COVID times. And nobody can come. Like the Olympics is over. The closing ceremonies have, have come and gone. Like I didn't wheel you down there and wheel you through and <laughs> wave your hand up. I mean weekend to Bernie's. <laughs> there you go. Hey guys, Kona. Yeah, so uh get me home. And then I got home and I immediately went to um, the University of Utah hospital for tests. Like let's see where he's at, let's see what's going on, like let's see what's affected. Luckily with me, nothing physically was affected. So like all my brain body connection, I could move my balance. Everything was fine. I mean, I had broken ribs, collapsed lung, torn ligaments and shoulder and bicep. So like that wasn't okay, but I could move. Um, and then, it, then it was like neurological testing to see, you know, like, a, imagine a three hour concussion test trying to figure out like what parts of your brain work and don't. And they identified the parts that weren't working properly. And then it was four months of rehabilitation to, um, get those back kind of firing at the level that they would have been firing at before the injury. Wow. And so for about two months, so it's kind of funny to think about it now, but the part of my brain that I hurt the worst um, is my frontal lobe. And that is kind of your filter. Like that is what stops you from. I've had a couple friends that have lost their filters. Yes. So that's why people, when they have a concussion, will just say whatever, do whatever. Like they don't think because their brain is injured. It's not working properly. Mm -hmm. And so for about two months, I would say anything to anyone at any time with no thought of whether it's appropriate or not. And I'm very thankful that I didn't say anything too bad online. I have some stuff that I put out that I maybe looking back wouldn't have normally put out there. It's okay. You hit your head. But um, I'm lucky I didn't say anything too bad, like get me in trouble. But yeah, there's some conversation. I got kicked out of an IHOP. I mean, I, I had some stuff that is just not how I normally would be. Who like, hasn't been kicked out of an IHOP? <laughs> this is at two in the afternoon. This isn't at like two in the morning. <laughs> but... Um, but yeah, everything, uh, I had a great team of people around me helping me with rehabilitation. My family was super supportive. I worked very hard and luckily enough, I came out the other side. And then my reward for coming out the other side of the head injury was, hey, your head's better. Let's get your shoulder fixed. Let's go down to Stedman and Vale and, and get your shoulder reconstructed. And now you're all good. And then we can go to the start to where, you know, you decided to retire a month ago. Yep. Um, and I, I'd say that you've had a, a very successful career appeared at three Olympics and you walked away with the gold medal and all the other championships that you wanted along the way that for the community and yourself means a lot more than just saying I'm an Olympic gold medalist. Um, and uh, it, it, it was interesting talking before you, but you went and got a degree. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So um, one of the great things about being a member of the Olympic team is if you want to go to school, they will support you with a scholarship to go to school. And 
I can only train for so many hours a day. So I just part-time for eight years. I part-time would just go to school and take some classes and try to do things that would be helpful for me while I was racing. So I did, I did business. So I learned about accounting and finance and marketing and things that I used throughout my career in different ways. Um, but once I got healthy, I, I didn't want to decide too soon that I was going to retire, right? Because after a big hit, after a big injury, everyone's like, oh, I'm done. I'm done. I'm never and like, I've had that before too. Break an arm. You're like, I'm done. This is it. I'm done. But then you get healthy and you start competing or riding a little bit. And you're like, oh, like, I'm okay. We're good. I mean, I'm, I would assume you probably had those hits where you're like, this is it. I'm not doing this again. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was times where I was like, well, I don't know if I'm ever going to be on the podium again after yeah. that injury. Mm-hmm. And then I'd like win an event and be like, oh, wait, cool. I'm back. Yeah. <laughs> I'm back. So I just didn't want to be like too reactive and be like, all right, I had a big hit. Like, I'm done. And then six months down the track, be like, oh, eh, I want to race again. And I was also like 30 minutes away from potentially contending, not potentially contending, but potentially winning another gold medal. Like I was yeah. right there. Yep. I trained for five years for a race and I didn't get to finish it. Right. And so that leaves a bit of a sour taste in your mouth. So I wanted to, when I made the call one way or the other, whether I was going to continue on through the next Olympics or not, I wanted to be sure. So I got healthy. I started training again. I trained for a couple months and I just wanted to see if I still wanted to do it. And for the first time in my life, I didn't wake up in the morning ready and excited to go train. I woke up and think, Ugh, I got to go do this today. Yeah. Or I watched a race on TV and instead of thinking, man, I would have smoked those guys. There's a piece of that still there, but it was more like, glad I'm not there today. That looks like a horrible course. You know, it was the first time that I kind of had thoughts that were a bit different and that kind of made me recognize, you know, it's probably time. Yep. It's probably time. And let's talk about Chase Bikes. You were a part of the company, you know, from early stages. You've perfected building this bike and you're you're still heavily involved with the company. Um, I mean, it's 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 you know, one thing to walk away completely, but to stay involved is is, you know, always I think a good thing. You know, even Danny's kind of turned to coaching. It's you guys have spent your whole lives doing this thing to walk away, which some people do. Um, but you know, to be a part of something like that and building these bikes, that's still going to mean quite a lot to you. Yeah, totally. I mean, end of the day, I'm still that kid like who loves BMX and there's still that seven year old who, you know, thought about it 24 hours a day in there. Um, so I, am doing some coaching as well. Uh, I, I love doing beginner coaching. We were talking off air about, you know, he's doing some stuff with the, the more elite level now, but I love teaching kids how to ride a bike how to jump for the first time, like the basics, like that's so rewarding for me to give that gift to, uh, to these other kids and potentially inspire them to go further. Um, and then, yeah, I've I've been a part of chase bikes since day number one that they signed me before they even had a bike to show me. They just had an idea and they, I even helped pick the name. And so I, I feel very lucky, but I also feel like part of the brand, like I've helped build this from ground up to where now that bicycle has won everything it's possible to win in the sport. And they are generally known as the best, if not uh, the best or one of the best bikes in the sport. Um, there's a chase bike that now sits on the floor of the hall of fame. Sick. And I got to help design it. And so moving forward, I'm looking forward to continuing that relationship in a different way and helping with product development, helping figure out what athletes are going to sign next and marketing strategies and things like that. So oh, it's, yeah. it's cool. Man, it's uh, it's a very uh, crazy story, you know, of highs and lows, and 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 to be able to um, 
you know, come out and still be alive. And, I, I, you know, you also said that, you know, you want to get into announcing. And after speaking to you for a couple hours now, an hour before and now, like, I think you're going to be a great host as well. And I think, like, having people like you in the sport is very important to be able to pass down your knowledge and what you've been through. And I think, you know, America is very lucky to have someone like you on the sport of BMX is very lucky to have you, you know, to still be here and be able to push it and, and, and move forward. So we appreciate you here at Monster Energy, Connor. And, and Danny has this thing that we wrap up with. He's got a few lightning round questions. And we're All just right. gonna fire him off. And, 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 and before that, thank you for the, the kind words. I appreciate yeah, course, that. Man. <laughs> yeah, you are definitely a true legend and have probably inspired hundreds and thousands of kids to pick up that bike in a different way, you know? Um, and on that, what advice to young kids looking to be pro BMXers do you have? Uh, two, two big things. Um, have fun, but work hard. Um, what's the best part about growing up in Vegas as a biker? Uh, it doesn't rain, so, and it doesn't snow, so we can ride year-round. I could ride pretty much every single day when I was a kid. It was hot, but I could ride. Very hot. <laughs> uh, who was your inspiration? Um, so growing up in Vegas, uh, I mean, I, I, I loved all kinds of BMX as a kid. So TJ Lavin, he was kind of the local legend yep. growing up. Love TJ. Yeah, he's a good dude. Um, and like even Dave Mira, I used to play you know, Dave Mira video games when I was a kid. And then some other guys on the racing side, Kyle Bennett and a couple others would have been the inspiration. Very cool. Um, how many times have you watched the movie Rad? <laughs> uh, four or five. Nothing crazy, but it's a classic okay. movie. Yeah. Four or five. I've watched it about probably ten times. And I can't go that fast on a bike. Um, most special trophy in your home to you? Obviously, it'd be the Olympic gold medal. I mean, I think that's kind of a cop-out. It's an easy one. Um, but sitting right next to my gold medal is my very first trophy. So it's it's about this tall. It's a little silver one. It's 1999 fourth place. Yeah, so it's right next to the gold medal. It's pretty cool. Yeah, they need to give more medals out for fourth and fifth and sixth. <laughs> like they do when you're a kid. Yeah. Um, if you had a superpower, what would it be? Teleportation so I don't have to go to the airport. Um, they're working on that. <laughs> well, they are. Like, yeah. like a big tunnel shooter thing, yeah. right, where you get in a tube. Yeah. I just think, you know, oh, I want to go snowboarding today. I'm going to go to Vail and just close my eyes and I'm there. Like, that'd be nice. Hopefully we're allowed to see that. Yeah. Uh, what's the favorite city or country you've traveled for BMX? Can I say two? Yeah. Um, most epic race we ever did. Uh, we, we had a race on I, an island called Curacao. Don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's in the Caribbean. Uh, it's a tiny little island. And they had a BMX track there and a BMX race there. And we stayed at like a beach resort hotel. So it was like the, you'd have so much discipline not to just be on vacation. The Mai Tai in the, the pool. And the race was in the evening too. So you'd be sitting at the beach all day just like, uh, it, it was amazing. It was unreal. After the race was over, we'd go and jump in the ocean. And it was a good time. So if every race was there, I might, I might have came back. And then the other one, um, I spent a lot of time in your homeland in Australia. Yeah, we're, we're BMX guys. Yep, and um, all over Gold Coast, Brisbane, Same. Melbourne, Sydney, been all over. Um, and I really enjoy Australia as well. Culture, food, people, good people. Sick. Sickos. Sickos. Yeah. Bunch of sick. Well, you yeah. Know. <laughs> Sickos. Oh, uh, I, think, I think that's well, it. One more, one more, one out of a million. What are the chances you'd ever come out of retirement for the next Olympics? Uh, is there any, like, 
specific reason? Like, is the world going to end if I don't? Or is it like just I would have to decide I want to? You would have to, just the world's about to end. If the world's about to end, well, then a, I'll do it. That, no, you'd have it. to decide you'd want to. Yeah. We'll I'm good, man. He's good. I'm He's good. good. Hang it up. Brittany, anything? No, I Lots think you covered say. all the bases. Did you know Ty Penny? I do. Yeah, I do yeah. too. Well, Vegas, and yeah. we were just talking Vegas about Vegas is like oddly small. It is. No, it's yeah. small. Yeah, that's the crew. And yeah. you said TJ Lab, and I was like, hey, I yep. must know the same same people. I'm sure there's probably more. Oh, there is. Yeah. If we know them, then no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, dude. That was awesome. Thank you guys for having Imagine. me. Rockstar. It's a wrap. Unleashed with the Dingo and Danny, fueled by Monster Energy.